0: Chapter thirteen. If thou appear untouched by thaw solemn thought, thy nature is not therefore less divine. Thou liest in Abraham's bosom all the year, and worshipped at the temple's inner shrine, a God being with thee when we know it not. And very nice too, Jeremy said aloud. Transparent was the word, he reflected. The meeting was there like a fly in amber. Or rather there was no fly, there was only the amber, and the amber was the meaning. He looked at his watch. Three minutes to midnight. He closed his Wordsworth. And to think, he went on bitterly to remind himself, to think that he might have been refreshing his memory of Felicia, laid the volume down on the table beside his bed and took off his glasses. Deprived of their six and a half diopters of correction, his eyes were instantly reduced to a state of physiological disrepair. Curved crystal had become their element. Unspectacled, they were like a pair of jellied sea creatures, suddenly taken out of water. Then the light went out, and it was as though the poor things had been mercifully dropped for safekeeping into an aquarium. Jeremy stretched under the bedclothes and yawned. What a day! But now, thank God, the paradise of bed. The blessed damoiselle leaned out from the gold bed of heaven. But these sheets were cotton ones, not linen, which was really a bit discreditable in a house like this. <laughs> a house full of Rubenses and Grecos, and your sheets were cotton. But that crucifixion of St. Peter... What a really staggering machine, at least as good as the assumption at Toledo, which had probably been blown up by this time, incidentally, just to demonstrate what happened when people took things too seriously. Not but that, he went on to reflect, there wasn't something rather impressive about that old propter object, for that was what he had decided to call the man in his own mind, and when he wrote to his mother, the propter object. A bit of an ancient mariner, perhaps, "'The wedding guest, he beat his breast on occasions, "'ought perhaps to have beaten it more often than he had done, "'seeing what a frightful subversion of all the common decencies "'and a, fe, a fortiori the common indecencies, such as Felicia, "'such as every other Friday afternoon in of ale. "'The creature was inculcating. "'Not without a considerable persuasiveness, damn his glittering eyes. "'For this particular mariner not only held you with that eye of his, "'he was also and simultaneously the loud bassoon you wanted to hear.' One listened without reluctance, though of course one had little intention of permitting one's own particular little structure of decencies and indecencies to be subverted. One was not going to allow religion, of all things, to invade the sanctities of private life. An Englishman's home is his castle, and curiously enough, an American's castle, as he had discovered after the first shock began to wear off, was turning out to be this particular Englishman's home, his spiritual home, because it was the embodiment of an imbecile's no-track mind. Because there were no issues, and nothing led anywhere, and the dilemmas had an infinity of horns, and you went round and round, like Faber's caterpillars, in a closed universe of utter cosigns. Round and round, among the Hoburg papers, from St. Peter to La Pite Morphile, to Giambologna, to the gilded bodhisattvas in the cellar, to the baboons, to the Marquis de Sade, to St. Francois de Sales to Felicia, and round again in due course to St. Peter. Round and round, like caterpillars inside the mind of an imbecile, round and round in an infinite coziness of issueless thoughts and feelings and actions, of hermetically bottled art and learning, of culture for its own sake, of self-sufficient little decencies and indecencies, of impassable dilemmas and moral questions sufficiently answered by the circumambient idiocy, Round and round, round and round, from Peter's feet to morfields little buttocks, to the baboons, from the beautiful Chinese spiral of the folds in the Buddha's robe, to the hummingbird drinking in midair, to Peter's feet again with the nails in them. His drowsiness darkened into sleep. In another room on the same floor of the dungeon, Pete Boone was not even trying to get to sleep. He was trying, on the contrary, to figure things out. To figure out science and Mr. Proctor, social justice and eternity, and Virginia and anti-fascism. It wasn't easy, because if Mr. Proctor was right, then you'd have to start thinking quite differently about almost everything. Disinterested quest for the truth. That was what you said, if you were even forced to say anything so embarrassing, about why you were a biologist. And in the case of socialism, it was humanity. It was the greatest happiness of the greatest number. It was progress. And of course, that linked up with biology again, happiness and progress through science as well as socialism. And while happiness and progress were on the way, there was loyalty to the cause. He remembered a piece about loyalty by Josiah Royce, a piece he had had to read in his sophomore year at college. Something about all loyal people grasping in their own way some form of religious truth, winning some kind of genuine religious insight. It had made a big impression on him at the time. He had just lost his faith in that old blood of the lamb business he'd been brought up in, and this had come as a kind of reassurance had made him feel that after, he, after all, he was religious, even if he didn't go to church anymore. Religious because he was loyal. Loyal to causes, loyal to friends. He had been religious. It had always seemed to him over there in Spain. Religious again when he felt that way about Virginia. And yet, if Mr. Proctor was right, old Royce's ideas about loyalty were all wrong. Being loyal didn't of itself give you religious insight. On the contrary, it might prevent you from having insight. Indeed, it was absolutely certain to prevent you if you gave your loyalty to anything less than the highest cause of all. And the highest cause of all, if Mr. Proctor was right, was almost terrible in its farness and strangeness. Almost terrible. And yet the more he thought about it, the more dubious he felt about everything else. Perhaps it really was the highest. But if it was, then socialism wasn't enough. And it wasn't enough because humanity wasn't enough. Because the greatest happiness didn't happen to be in the place where people had thought it was. Because you couldn't make it come by doing things in the sort of fields you worked in if you were a social reformer. The best you could do in those fields was to make it easier for people to go on to where the greatest happiness could be had. And of course, what applied to socialism would apply to biology or any other science, if you thought of it as a means to progress. Because if Mr. Propter was right, then what people called progress wasn't progress. That is, it wouldn't be progress unless it had made it easier for people to go on to where the greatest happiness actually was. Easier, in other words, to be loyal to the highest cause of all. And obviously, if that was your standard, you had to think twice about using progress as a justification for science. And then there was that disinterested quest for truth. But again, if Mr. Proctor was right, biology and the rest were the disinterested quest for only one aspect of truth. But a half-truth was a falsehood and it remained a falsehood even when you told it in the belief that it was the whole truth. So it looked as though that justification wouldn't do either. Or at any rate, as though it wouldn't do unless you were at the same time disinterestedly trying to discover the other aspect of truth, the aspect you were looking for when you gave your loyalty to the highest cause of all. And meanwhile, what about Virginia, he asked himself in mounting anguish. What about Virginia? For if Mr. Proctor was right, then even Virginia wasn't enough. Even Virginia might actually be an obstacle to prevent him from giving his loyalty to the highest cause of all. Even those eyes and her innocence and that utterly adorable mouth. Even what he felt about her. Even love itself. Even the best kind of love. For he could honestly say that he hated the other kind. That dreaded bar- brothel in bar- that dreadful, dreadful brothel in Barcelona, for example. And here at home, the, those huggings after the third or fourth cocktail. Those gropings by the roadside in a parked car. Yes, even the best kind of love might be inadequate, might actually be worse than inadequate. I could not love thee, dear, so much, loved I not something or other more. Hitherto, something or other had been his biology, his socialism. But now these had turned out to be inadequate, or even taken as ends in themselves, worse than inadequate. No loyalty was good in itself, or brought religious insight, except loyalty to the highest cause of all. I could not love thee, dear, so much, loved I not the highest cause of all more. But the question, the agonizing question was this. Could you love the highest cause of all and go on feeling as you did about Virginia? The worst love was obviously incompatible with loyalty to the highest cause of all. Obviously so, because the worst love was just being loyal to your own physiology. Whereas if Mr. Proctor was right, you couldn't be loyal to the highest cause of all without denying such loyalties to yourself. But was the best love so fundamentally different, after all, from the worst? The worst was being loyal to your physiology. It was hateful to admit it, but so too was the best. Being loyal to your physiology and at the same time, which was its distinguishing mark, loyal also to your higher feelings, to that empty ache of longing, to that infinity of tenderness, to that adoration, that happiness, those pains, that sense of solitude, that longing for identity. You were loyal to these, and being loyal to these was the definition of the best kind of love, of what people call romance and praised as the most wonderful thing in life. But being loyal to these was being loyal to yourself. And you couldn't be loyal to yourself and loyal at the same time to the highest cause of all. The practical conclusion was obvious. But Pete refused to draw it. Those eyes were blue and limpid, that mouth adorable in its innocence. And then how sweet she was, how beautifully thoughtful. He remembered the conversation they had had on their way into dinner. He had asked her how her headache was. Don't talk about it, she had whispered. It might upset Uncle Joe. "'Doc's been going over him with his stethoscope. "'Doesn't think he's so good this evening. "'I don't want to have him worry about me. "'And anyhow, what is a headache?' "'Not only beautiful, not only innocent and sweet, "'but brave, too, and unselfish. "'And how adorable she had been to him all the evening, "'asking him about his work, "'telling him about her home in Oregon, "'making him talk about his home down in El Paso. "'In the end, Mr. Stoit had come and sat down beside them "'in silence, and his face black as thunder.' Pete had glanced inquiringly at Virginia, and she had given him a look that said, "'Please go,' and another when he rose to say goodnight, so pleadingly apologetic, so full of gratitude, so understanding, so sweet and affectionate, that the recollection of it was enough to bring the tears into his eyes. Lying there in the darkness, he cried with happiness. That niche in the wall between the windows in Virginia's bedroom had been intended, no doubt, for a bookshelf. But Virginia was not very keen on books. The recess had been fitted up instead as a little shrine. You drew back a pair of short, white velvet curtains. Everything in the room was white. And there, in the bower of artificial flowers, dressed in real silk robes, with the cutest little gold crown on her head and six strings of seed pearls round her neck, stood Our Lady, brilliantly illuminated by an ingenious system of concealed electric bulbs. Barefooted and in white satin pajamas, Virginia was kneeling before the sacred doll's house, saying her evening prayers. Our Lady, it seemed to her, was looking particularly sweet and kind tonight. Tomorrow, she decided, while her lips pronounced the formulas of praise and supplication. Tomorrow morning, first thing, she'd go right down to the sewing room and get one of the girls to help her make a new mantle for Our Lady out of that lovely piece of blue brocade she had bought last week at the junk shop in Glendale. A blue brocade mantle, fastened in front with a gold button, or better still, with a little gold cord that you could tie in a bow with the ends hanging down almost to Our Lady's feet. Oh, that would be just gorgeous. She wished it were morning so they could start right away. The last prayer had been said. Virginia crossed herself and rose from her knees. Happening to look down as she did so, she saw to her horror that some of the cyclamen-colored varnish had scaled off the nails of the second and third toes of her left foot. A minute later, she was squatting on the floor beside the bed. The right leg outstretched and the other foot drawn across it, making ready to repair the damage. An open bottle stood beside her. She held a small paintbrush in her hand, and a horribly industrial aura of acetone had enveloped the chaparella, shocking with which her body was impregnated. She started to work, and as she bent forward, two strands of auburn hair broke loose from the curly pattern and fell across her forehead. Under frowning brows, the large blue eyes intently stared. To aid concentration, the tip of a pink tongue was held between the teeth. Hell, she said suddenly aloud as a little brush made a false stroke. Then immediately the teeth clamped down again. Interrupting her work to allow the first coat of varnish to dry, she shifted her scrutiny from the toes to the calf and shin of her left leg. The hairs were beginning to grow again, she noticed with annoyance. It would soon be time for another one of those wax treatments. Still pensively caressing the leg, she let her mind travel back over the events of the day. The memory of that close call with Uncle Joe still gave her shivers of apprehensive excitement. Then she she thought of Sig with his stethoscope, and the upper lip lifted ravishingly in a smile of amusement. And then there was that book, which it served Uncle Joe right that she should have had Sig read to her and Sig getting fresh with her between the chapters and making passes. That also served Uncle Joe right for trying to spy on her. She remembered how mad she got at Sig. Not so much for what he actually did, for besides serving Uncle Uncle Joe right, of course it was only afterwards that she discovered quite how right it served him. What he actually did had been rather thrilling than otherwise, because after all, Sig was terribly attractive, and in those ways Uncle Joe's didn't hardly count. In fact, you might almost say that he counted the other way, in the red, so to speak. Counted less than a nobody, so that anybody else who was attractive seemed still more attractive when Uncle Joe had been around. No, it wasn't what he actually did that had made her mad at him. It was the way he did it, laughing at her like that. She didn't mind a bit of kidding at ordinary times, but kidding while he was actually making passes, that was treating her like she was a tart on Main Street. No romance or anything, just that sniggering sort of laugh and a lot of dirty cracks. Maybe it was sophisticated, but she didn't like it. And didn't he see that it was just plain dumb to act that way? Because, after all, when you'd been reading that book with someone so attractive as Sig, well, you felt like you'd like, a bigger, you'd like a bit of romance. Real romance, like in the pictures, with moonlight and swing music, or perhaps a torch singer. Because it was nice to feel sad when you were happy, and a boy saying lovely things to you and a lot of kissing, and at the end of it, almost without your knowing it, almost as if it weren't happening to you, so you would never felt there was anything wrong, anything that our lady would really mind. Virginia sighed deeply and shut her eyes. Her face took on an expression of seraphic tranquility. Then she sighed again, shook her head, and frowned. Instead of that, she was thinking angrily, instead of that, Sig had to go and spoil it all by acting hard-boiled and sophisticated. It just shot all the romance to pieces and made you feel mad at him. And what was the sense in that? Virginia concluded resentfully. What was the sense in that, either from his point of view or from hers? The first coat of varnish seemed to be dry. Bending over her foot, she blew on her toes for a little and then started to apply the second coat. Behind her, all of a sudden, the door of the bedroom was opened and as gently closed again. "'Uncle Joe,' she said inquiringly and with a note of surprise in her voice, but without looking up from her enameling. There was no answer, only the sound of an approach across the room. "'Uncle Joe,' she repeated and this time interrupted the painting of her toes to turn around. Dr. Obispo was standing over her. "'Sig!' her voice dropped to a whisper. "'What are you doing?' Dr. Obispo smiled his smile of ironic admiration, of intense and at the same time amused and mocking concupiscence. "'I thought we might go on with our French lesson,' he said. "'You're crazy,' she looked apprehensively towards the door. "'He's just across the hall. He might come in.' Dr. Obispo smiled, broadened to a grin. "'Don't worry about Uncle Joe,' he said. "'He'd kill you if he found you here.' "'He won't find me here,' Dr. Obispo said. "'I gave him a capsule of Nembutal before he went to bed. "'He'll sleep through the last trump.' The last trump. I think you're awful, said Virginia emphatically, but she couldn't help laughing, partly out of relief and partly because it was really it was really rather funny to think of Uncle Joe snoring away next door while Sig read her that stuff. Doctor Obisbo pulled the book of common prayer out of his pocket. Don't let me interrupt your labours, he said, with a parody of chivalrous politeness. A woman's work is never done. Just go right on as though I weren't here. I'll find the place and start reading. Smiling at her with imperturbable impudence, He sat down on the edge of the rococo bed and turned over the pages of the book. Virginia opened her mouth to speak, then catching hold of her left foot, closed it again under the compulsion of a need even more urgent than that of telling him exactly where he got off. The varnish was drying in lumps. Her toes would look just awful if she didn't go on with them at once. Hastily dipping her little brush into the bottle of acetone enamel, she started painting again with the focused intensity of a van Eyck at work on the microscopic details of the adoration of the lamb. "'Dr. Obispo looked up from the book. "'I admired the way you acted with Pete this evening,' he said, "'flirting with him all through dinner "'so that you got the old man hopping jealous of him. "'That was masterly, or should one say mistressly.' "'Virginia released her tongue to say emphatically, "'Pete's a nice boy, but dumb,' Dr. Obispo qualified, "'as he sprawled with conscious elegance "'and a maddeningly insolent assumption "'of being at home across the bed. "'Otherwise he wouldn't be in love with you the way he is,' "'he uttered a snort of laughter.' The poor chump thinks you're an angel, a, heavily, a heavenly little angel, complete with wings, harp, and genuine 18-carat, fully-jeweled, Swiss-made virginity. Well, if that isn't being dumb. You just wait till I get time for you, said Virginia menacingly, but without looking up, for she had reached a critical phase in the execution of her work of art. Dr. Obisbo ignored the remark. I used to underestimate, underestimate the value of an education in the humanities, he said after a little silence. Now I make that mistake no longer. In a tone of deep solemnity, a tone one might imagine like Whittier's in reading from his own works. The lessons of great literature, he went on, the deep truths, the gems of wisdom. Oh, shut up, said Virginia. When I think what I owe Dante and Goethe, said Dr. Abisbo in the same prophetic style, take the case of Paola reading aloud to Francesca, with the most fruitful results, if you remember. Un giorno legavamo partiletto di camormo come lo strinze. Solo ravamo i salanzaloculum subseto Sansalcun subseto, Doctor Obispo repeated with emphasis, looking as he did so at one of the engravings in the Saint. not the smallest suspicion, mark you of what was going to happen. Hell said Virginia, who had made another slip, no, not even a suspicion of hell, Doctor Obispo insisted, though of course they ought to have been on the lookout for it. They ought to have had the elementary prudence on guard against being sent there by the accident of sudden death. A few simple precautions, and they could have made the best of both worlds. Could have had their fun while the brother was out of the way, and, when the time for having fun was over, could have repented and died in the odor of sanctity. But then it must be admitted that they hadn't the advantage of reading Goethe's Faust. They hadn't learned that inconvenient relatives could be given sleeping draughts, And even if they had learned, they wouldn't have been able to go to the drugstore and buy a bottle of Nembutal, which shows that education in the humanities isn't enough. There must also be education and science, Dante and Goethe to teach you what to do, and the professor of pharmacology to show you how to put the old buzzard into a coma with a pinch of barbiturate. (laughs) The toes were finished. Still holding her left foot so as to keep it from any damaging contact until the varnish should be entirely dry, Virginia turned on her visitor. I won't have you calling him an old buzzard, she said hotly. Well, shall we say bastard, Dr. Abispo suggested. He's a better man than you'll ever be, Virginia cried, and her voice had the ring of sincerity. I think he's wonderful. You think he's wonderful, Dr. Abisbo repeated, but all the same, in about 15 minutes, you'll be sleeping with me. He laughed as he spoke, and, leaning forward from his place on the bed, caught her two arms from behind, a little below the shoulders. Look out for your toes, he said, as Virginia cried out and tried to wrench herself away from him. The fear of ruining her masterpiece made her check the movement before it was more than barely initiated. Dr. Abisbo took advantage of her hesitation to stoop down through the aura of acetone towards the nape of that delicious neck, towards the perfume of shocking, towards a firm warmth against the mouth, a touch of hair like silk upon the cheeks. Swearing, Virginia furiously jerked her head away, but a fine tingling of agreeable sensation was running parallel, so to speak, with her indignation, was incorporating itself in, in it. This time, Dr. Abisbo kissed her behind the ear. Shall I tell you, he whispered, what I'm going to do to you? She answered by calling him a lousy ape man, but he told her all the same in considerable detail. Less than 15 minutes had elapsed when Virginia opened her eyes and, across the now darkened room, caught sight of Our Lady smiling hmm, benightedly, I think, benightedly, from among the flowers of her illuminated doll's house. With a cry of dismay, she jumped up and without waiting to put on any clothes, ran to the shrine and drew the curtains. The lights went out automatically. Stretching out her hands in the thick darkness, she groped her way cautiously back to bed. Part Two Chapter One Again, no dearth of news, Jeremy wrote to his mother three weeks later. News of every kind and from all the centuries. Here's a bit of news to begin with about the Second Earl. In the intervals of losing battles for Charles I, the second earl was a poet. A bad poet, of course, for the chances are always several thousands to one against any given poet being good, but with occasional involuntary deviations into charm. What about this, for example, which I found in manuscript only yesterday? One taper burns, but tis too much. Our loves demand complete eclipse. Let sight give place to amorous touch and candlelight to limbs and lips. Rather pretty, don't you think? But alas, almost the only nugget so far on earth from the alluvium. If only the rest were silence. But that's the trouble with poets, good no less than bad. They will not keep their traps shut, as we say in the Western Hemisphere. What joy if the rest of Wordsworth had been silence, the rest of Coleridge, the rest of Shelley. Meanwhile, the, the fifth earl sprang a surprise on me yesterday in the form of a notebook full of miscellaneous jottings. I have only just started on them for I mustn't spend all my time on any one item till I have the whole collection unpacked and roughly catalogued. But the fragments I've read are decidedly appetizing. I found this on the first page. Lord Chesterfield writes to his son that a gentleman never speaks to his footman, nor even the beggar in the street, d'un ton Brusque, but corrects the one coolly and refuses the other with humanity. His lordship should have added that there is an art by which such coolness may be rendered no less formidable than anger, and such humanity more wounding than insult. Furthermore, footmen and beggars are not the only objects on whom this art may be exercised. His lordship has been ungallant enough in this instance to forget the sex, for there is also an art of coolly outraging a devoted female, and of abusing her person with all the biais en befitting the most accomplished gentleman. Not a bad beginning. I will keep you posted of any subsequent discoveries in this field. Meanwhile, contemporary news is odd, confused, and a bit disagreeable. To begin with, Uncle Joe is chronically glum and ill-tempered these days. I suspect the green-eyed monster, for the blue-eyed monster, in other words, Miss Mounceable, the baby, has been rolling them for some time now in the direction of young Pete. Whether she rolls more than the eyes, I don't know, but suspect the fact, for she has that inward dreamy look. That faraway sleepwalker's expression, which one often remarks on the faces of young ladies who have been doing a lot of strenuous lovemaking. <laughs> that faraway sleepwalker's expression, which one often remarks on the faces of young ladies who have been doing a lot of strenuous lovemaking. That's <laughs> good. You know the expression I mean. Exquisitely spiritual and pre-Raphaelitish. Oh my god. Raphaelitish. That's a mouthful. One has only to look at such a face to know that God exists. The one incongruous feature in the present instance is the costume. A pre-Raphaelite expression demands pre-Raphaelite. Raphaelite. Raphaelite. I can't. I can't do it. Raphael. Raphaelite. Raphaelite? Jesus Christ. A pre-Raphaelite expression demands pre-Raphaelite. That's awful. Pre-Raphaelite clothes. Long sleeves, square yokes, yards and yards of liberty velveteen. When you see it as I did today, in combination with white shorts, a bandana, and a cowboy hat, you're disturbed, you're all put out. Meanwhile, in defense of Baby's honor, I must insist that all this is merely hypothesis and guesswork. It may be, of course, that this new spiritual expression of hers is not the result of amorous fatigue. For all I know to the contrary, Baby may have been converted by the teachings of the propter object and is now walking about in a state of perpetual samadhi. On the other hand, I do see her giving the glad eye to Pete. What's more, Uncle Joe exhibits all the symptoms of being suspicious of them and extremely cross with everybody else. With me, among others, of course. Perhaps even more with me than with others because I happen to have read more books than the rest and am therefore more of a symbol of culture. And culture, of course, is a thing for which he has positively a Tartar's hatred. Only, unlike the Tartars, he doesn't want to burn the monuments of culture, he wants to buy them up. He expresses his superiority to talent and education by means of possession rather than destruction by hiring and then insulting the talented and educated rather than by killing them, though perhaps you would kill them if you had the Tartar's opportunities and power. All this means that, when I am not in bed or safely underground with the hobürgs I spend most of my time gritting and bearing, thinking of Jelly Belly and my nice salary, in order not to think too much of Uncle Joe's bad manners. It's all very unpleasant, but fortunately not unbearable, and the hobürgs are an immense consolation and compensation. So much for the erotic and cultural fronts, on the scientific front, the news is that we're all perceptibly nearer to living as long as crocodiles. At the time of writing, I haven't decided whether I really want to live as long as a crocodile. With the penning of, of the second crocodile, Jeremy was seized by a sudden qualm. His mother would be 77 in August. Under that urbanity of hers, under the crackled glaze of the admirable conversation, there was a passionate greed for life. She would talk matter-of-factly enough about her own approach extinction. She would make little jokes about her death and funeral. But behind the talk and the little jokes, there lurked, as Jeremy knew, a fierce determination to hold on to what was left, to go on doing what she had always done in the teeth of death and defiance of old age. This talk of crocodiles might give pain. This expression of doubt as to the desirability of prolonging life might be interpreted as an unfavorable criticism. Jeremy took a new sheet of paper and started the paragraph afresh. So much for the erotic and cultural fronts, he wrote. On the scientific front, Rien de Nouveau, except that the Obispo is being more bumptious than ever, which isn't news because he's always more bumptious than ever. Not one of my favorite characters, I'm afraid, though not unamusing when one feels inclined for a few moments of ribaldry. Longevity, it appears, is making headway. Old Parr and the Countess of Desmond are on the march. And what of the religious front? Well, our propter object has given up his attempts at edification at any rate so far as I'm concerned. Thank heaven, for when he dismounts from his hobby horse, what excellent company he is. A mindful of all kinds of oddments, and the oddments are pigeonholed in apple pie order. One rather envies him, his intellectual coherence, but consoles oneself by thinking that, if one had them, they spoil one's own particular little trick. When one has a gift for standing gracefully on one's head, one is foolish and ungrateful to envy the marathon runner. A funny little literary article in the hand is worth at least three critiques of pure reason in the bush. <laughs> My final item is from the home front and refers to your last letter from Grasse. What a feast. Your account of Madame de Villemonneble was really Proustian. And as for the description of your drive to Cap D'ye and your day with what remains of the princess and Sopovra Hunyadi, well, all I can say is that it was worthy of Murak- Murasaki. The essence of all tragedy refined to a couple of tablespoonfuls of amber-colored tea in a porcelain cup no bigger than magnolia flower. What an admirable lesson in the art of literary chastity. My own tendencies, only in the world of letters, I am thankful to say, are are towards a certain exhibitionism. This festal prose of yours puts me to shame. Well, there is nothing more to say, as I used to write when I was at school, very large, do you remember? In an effort to make the words fill up half a page of notepaper, there is nothing more to say except, of course, the unsayable, which I leave unsaid because you know it already. Jeremy sealed up his letter, addressed it, "'to the Arakarias, for his mother would be back from grass "'by the time it had crossed the Atlantic, "'and slipped the envelope into his pocket. "'All around him, the Hobart papers clamored for his attention. "'But for some time, he remained idle. "'His elbow on the desk, in an attitude of prayer, he "'he meditatively scratched his head, "'scratched it with both hands where two little spots had formed, "'dry scabs at the root of the hair that still remained to him, "'scabs which it was an exquisite pleasure "'to prise up with the fingernails and carefully detached.' He was thinking of his mother and how curious it was, after all, that one should have read all the Freudian literature about the Oedipus business, all the novels from sons and lovers downwards, about the dangers of too much filial devotion, the menace of excessive maternal love, that one should have read them all and still, with with one's eyes open, go on being what one was, the victim of a greedy, possessive mother. And perhaps even odder was the fact that this possessive mother had also read all the relevant literature, and was also perfectly aware of what she was and what she had done to her son. And yet she too went on being and doing what she always had been and done, just as he did, and with his eyes no less open than her own, and with eyes no less open than his own. There, the scab under the right hand had come loose. He pulled it out through the thick tufted hair above his ears. And as he looked at the tiny desiccated shred of tissue, was suddenly reminded of the baboons. But after all, why not? The most certain and abiding pleasures are the tiniest, the simplest, the rudimentary animal. The pleasure of lying in a hot bath, for example, or under the bedclothes between waking and sleeping in the morning. The pleasure of answering the calls of nature. The pleasure of being rubbed by a good masseur. The pleasure of finally scratching when one itched. Why be ashamed? He dropped the scab into the waste paper basket and continued to scratch with the left hand. Nothing like self-knowledge, he reflected. To know why you do a thing that is wrong or stupid is to have an excuse for going on doing it. (laughs) Justification by psychoanalysis, the modern substitution for justification by faith. You know the distant causes which made you a sadist or a money grubber, a mother worshipper or a son cannibal. Therefore, you are completely justified in continuing to be a son cannibal mother-worshipper, money-grubber, or sadist. No wonder if whole generations had risen up to bless the name of Freud. Well, that was how he and his mother managed things. We blood-sucking matriarchs, Mrs. Portage used to say of herself, in the presence of the rector, what was more. Or else it was into Lady Fredegon's ear-trumpet that she pro- proclaimed her innocence. Old Yocastas like me, with a middle-aged son in the house, she would shout. And Jeremy would play up to her by coming across the room and bellowing into that tomb of intelligent conversation some feeble waggery about his being an old maid, for example, or about erudition as a substitute for embroidery. Any rot would do. And the old harridan would utter that deep gangster's laugh of hers and wag her head till, she, till the, the stuffed seagulls or the artificial penguins or whatever it was that she happened to be wearing in her always extraordinary hat, knotted like the plumes of a horse in a French pomp funeb of the finest class. Yet how curious it was, he said to himself again, but how sensible considering that they both, his mother and he, desired nothing better than to go on being just what they were. Her reasons for wanting to go on being a matriarch were obvious enough. It's fun to be a queen. It's delightful to receive homage and have a faithful subject. Less obvious, perhaps, at any rate, to an outsider were his own reasons for, for preferring the status quo. But looked into, they turned out to be cogent enough. There was affection to begin with, for under a certain superficial irony and airiness, he was deeply attached to his mother. Then there was habit, habit so long-standing that his mother had come to be for him almost like an organ of his own body, hardly less dispensable than his pancreas or his liver. There was even a feeling of gratitude towards her for having done to him the things which, at the time she did them, had seemed the most cruelly unjustifiable. He had fallen in love when he was thirty. He had wanted to marry. Without making a single scene, Without being anything but sympathetically loving towards himself and charming in all her dealings with dear little Eileen, Mrs. Portage had set to work to undermine the relationship between the two young people and had succeeded so well that in the end the relationship just fell in on itself like a house sapped from beneath. He had been very unhappy at the time and with a part of himself, he had hated his mother for what she had done. But as the years passed, he had felt less and less bitterly about the whole business. Until now, he was positively grateful to her for having delivered him from the horrors of responsibility of a family, of regular and remunerative labor, of a wife who would have probably turned out to be a worse tyrant than his mother, indeed, who would certainly have turned out to be a worse tyrant. For the bulging, bustling matron into whom Eileen had by degrees transformed herself was one of the most disastrous females of his acquaintance, a creature passionately conventional, proud of her obtuseness, ant-like in her efficiency, tyrannically benevolent, in short, a monster. But for his mother's strategy, he would now be the unfortunate Mr. Welkin, who was Eileen's husband and the father of no less than four little Welkins, as dreadful even in childhood and adolescence as Eileen had become in her middle age. His mother was doubtless speaking the truth when she jokingly called herself an old Yocasta, a blood-sucking matriarch. And doubtless, too, his brother Tom was right when he called him, Jeremy, a Peter Pan, and talked contemptuously of apron strings. But the fact remained that he had had the opportunity to read what he liked and write his little articles, and that his mother saw to all the practical aspects of life, demanded in return an amount of devotion which it really wasn't very difficult to give, and left him free on alternate Friday afternoons to savor the refined pleasures of an infinite squalor in of Vale. Meanwhile, look at what had happened to poor Tom, second secretary at Tokyo, first secretary at Oslo, counselor at La Paz, and now back, more or less for good, in the foreign office, climbing slowly up the hierarchy towards posts of greater responsibility and tasks of increasing turpitude. And as the salary rose and the morality of what he was called upon to do correspondingly sank, the poor fellow's uneasiness had increased, until at last, with the row over Abyssinia, he just hadn't been able to stand it any longer. On the brink of resignation or nervous breakdown, he had managed, in the nick of time, to get himself converted to Catholicism. Thenceforward, he had been able to pack up the moral responsibility for his share in the general iniquity, take it to Farm Street and leave it there, in Camphor, so to speak, with the Jesuit fathers. Admirable arrangement. It had made a new man of him. After 14 years of childlessness, his wife had suddenly had a baby. Conceived, Jeremy had calculated, on the very night that the Spanish Civil War began. Then, two days after the sack of Nanking, Tom had published a volume of comic verses. Curious how many English Catholic Catholics take to comic versifying. Do they? Meanwhile, he was steadily gaining weight. Between the Anschluss and Munich, he had put on 11 pounds. Another year or two of Farm Street and Power politics, and Tom would turn the scale at 14 stone and have written the libretto of a musical comedy. <laughs> another year or two of farm street and power politics and tom would turn the scale at 14 stone and have written the libretto of a musical comedy <laughs> that's really good no jeremy said to himself with decision no it simply wasn't admissible better peter pan and apron strings and infinite squalor in a little room better a thousand times better to begin with aesthetically for this getting fat on real politic this scribbling of comic verses on the margins of an engraving of the crucifixion. Really, it was too inelegant. And that wasn't all. It was better even ethically. For, of course, the old propter object was right. If you can't be sure of doing positive good, at least keep out of mischief. And there was poor old Tom, as busy as a beaver. And now that he was a papist, as happy as a lark. Working away at the precise spot where he could do the maximum amount of harm to the greatest possible number of people. The other scab came loose. Jeremy sighed and leaned back in his chair. One scratched like a baboon, he concluded. One lived at 54 in the security of one mother's shadow. One's sexual life was simultaneously infantile and corrupt. By no stretch of the imagination could one's work be described as useful or important. But when one compared oneself with other people, with Tom, for example, or even with the eminent and august, with cabinet ministers and steel magnates and bishops and celebrated novelists, well, really, one didn't come out so badly after all judged by the negative criterion of harmlessness one even came out extremely well so that taking all things into consideration there was really no reason why one should do anything much about anything having decided which it was time to get back to the hobberks chapter 2 virginia did not wake up that morning till nearly 10 and even after having had her bath and eaten her breakfast She remained in bed for another hour or more, her eyes closed, leaning back motionless against the heaped-up pillows, like a beautiful young convalescent newly emerged from the valley of the shadow. The valley of the shadow of death, of the greater deaths than all the little deaths. Through deaths come transfigurations. He who would save his life must lose it. Men and women are continually trying to lose their lives, the stale, unprofitable, senseless lives of their ordinary personalities forever trying to get rid of them, and in a thousand different ways. In the frenzies of gambling and revivalism, in the, monomani- in the monomanias of avarice and perversion, of research and sectarianism and ambition, in the, compensatory of, in the compensatory lunacies of alcohol, of reading, of daydreaming, of morphia, in the hallucinations of opium and the cinema and ritual, in the wild epilepsies of political enthusiasm and erotic pleasure, and the stupors of veronal and exhaustion, to escape, to forget one's own old wearisome identity, to become someone else, or better, some other thing, a mere body, strangely numbed or more than ordinarily sentient, or else just a state of impersonal mind, a mode of unindividualized consciousness. What happens? What a blissful alleviation. Even for such as were not previously aware that there was anything in their condition that needed to be alleviated, Virginia had been one of those, happy in limitation, not sufficiently conscious of her personal self to realize its ugliness and inadequacy, or the fundamental wretchedness of the human state. And yet, when Dr. Obispo had scientifically engineered her escape into, a, into an erotic epilepsy more excruciatingly intense than any other thing she had known before or even imagined possible, Virginia had realized that, after all, there was something in her existence that required alleviating, and that this headlong plunge through an intenser, utter alien consciousness into the darkness of a total oblivion was precisely the alleviation it required. But like all other addictions, whether to drugs or books to power or applause— The addiction to pleasure tends to aggravate the condition it temporarily alleviates. The addict goes down into the valley of the shadow of his own particular little death, down indefatigably, desperately down in search of something else, something not himself, something other and better than the life he miserably lives as a human person in the hideous world of human persons. He goes down and, either violently or in delicious inertia, he dies and is transfigured, but dies only for a little while, is transfigured only momentarily. After the little death is a little resurrection, a resurrection out of unconsciousness, out of self-annihilating excitement, back into the misery of knowing oneself alone and weak and worthless, back into a completer separateness, an acuter sense of personality. And the acuter the sense of separate personality, the more urgent the demand for yet another experience of assuaging death and transfiguration. The addiction alleviates, but in doing so, increases the pain's demanding alleviation. Lying there, propped up against her pillows, Virginia was suffering her daily resurrection from the valley of the shadow of her nocturnal deaths. From having been epileptically something else, she was becoming her own self again. A self, it was true, still somewhat numbed and bewildered by fatigue, still haunted by that memory of strange scenes and overpowering sensations, but nonetheless recognizably the old Virginia. The Virginia who admired Uncle Joe for his success and was grateful to him for having given her such a wonderful time. The Virginia who had always laughed and thought life grand and never bothered about things. The Virginia who had made Uncle Joe build the grotto and had loved Our Lady ever since she was a kid. And now this Virginia was double-crossing her poor old admired Uncle Joe, not just telling a few little fibs, which might happen to anyone, but deliberately and systematically double-crossing him. And not only him, she was also double-crossing poor Pete talking to him all the time, giving him the glad eye, as glad an eye at any rate as she was capable of giving in the circumstances, practically making love to him in public so that Uncle Joe wouldn't suspect Sig. Not that she wouldn't be glad in some ways if Uncle Joe did suspect him. She'd love to see him getting a punch on the jaw and being thrown out. Just love it. But meanwhile, she was doing everything she could to cover him up and in the process making that poor idiot boy imagine she was stuck on him. A double crosser, that was all she was a double-crosser. The knowledge of this worried her. It made her feel unhappy and ashamed. It prevented her laughing at things the way she used to. It kept her thinking and feeling bad about what she was doing, and resolving not to do it again. Resolving but not being able to prevent herself doing it again, even though she really hated herself for doing it, and hated Sig for making her and above all for telling her in that horrible, hard-boiled, cynical way just how he made her, and why she couldn't resist it and one of the reasons why she had to do it again was that it stopped her feeling bad about having done it before. But then, afterwards, she felt bad again. Felt so bad indeed that she had been ashamed to look Our Lady in the face. For more than a week now, the white velvet curtains across the front of the sacred doll's house had remained drawn. She simply didn't dare to open them because she knew that if she did and if she made a promise there on her knees to Our Lady, it just wouldn't be any good. When that awful sig came along again, she'd just go all funny inside, like her bones had all turned into rubber. And the strength would go out of her. And before she knew where she was, it would all be happening again. And that would be so much worse than the other times, because she'd made a promise about it to Our Lady. So that it was better not to make any promise at all. Not now, at any rate. Not until there seemed to be some chance of keeping it. Because it just couldn't last this way forever. She simply refused to believe she'd always have that awful rubber feeling in her bones. Someday she'd feel strong enough to tell Sig to go to hell. And when she did, she'd make that promise. Till then, better not. Virginia opened her eyes and looked with a nostalgic expression at the niche between the windows and the drawn white curtains that concealed the treasure within. The cunning little crown, the seed pearls, the mantle of blue silk, the benignant face, the adorable little hands. Virginia sighed profoundly and, closing her eyes again, tried, by a simulation of sleep, to recapture the happy oblivion from which the light of morning had forced her unwillingly to emerge. Chapter 3 Mr. Stoit had spent his morning at the Beverly Pantheon, very reluctantly, for he had a horror of cemeteries, even his own. But the claims of money-making were sacred. Business was a duty to which all merely personal considerations had to be sacrificed. And talk of business. The Beverly Pantheon was the finest real estate proposition in the country. The land had been bought during the war at $500 an acre improved with roads, tiny tahes, columbariums, and statuary to the tune of about 10,000 an acre and was now selling in grave sites at the rate of 160,000 an acre, selling so fast that the entire capital outlay had already been amortized so that everything from now on would be pure jam. And of course, as the population of Los Angeles increased, the jam would become correspondingly more copious, and the population was increasing at the rate of nearly 10% per annum. And what was more, the main accessions consisted of elderly retired people from other states of the Union, the very people who would bring the greatest immediate profit to the Pantheon. And so, when Charlie Habakkuk sent that urgent call for him to come over and discuss the latest plans of improvements and extensions, Mr. Stoith had found it morally impossible to refuse. Repressing his antipathies, he had done his duty. All that morning, the two men had sat with their cigars in Charlie's office at the top of the Tower of Resurrection, and Charlie had waved those hands of his and spouted cigar smoke from his nostrils and talked. God, how he had talked. As though he were one of those men in a red fez trying to make you buy an oriental carpet. And incidentally, Mr. Stewart reflected morosely. That was what Charlie looked like. Only he was better fed than most of those carpet boys and therefore greasier. Cut the sales talk, he cried out loud. You seem to forget I own the place. Charlie looked at him with an expression of pained surprise. Sales talk? But this wasn't sales talk. This was real. This was earnest. The Pantheon was his baby. For all practical purposes, he had invented the place. It was he who had thought up the tiny Taj in the Church of the Bard. He who, on his own initiative, had bought that bargain lot of statues at Genoa. He who had first clearly formulated the policy of injecting sex appeal into death. He who had resolutely resisted every attempt to introduce into the cemetery any representation of grief or age, any symbol of mortality, any image of the sufferings of Jesus. He had had to fight for his idea, He had had to listen to a lot of criticism, but the results had proved him right. Anyone who complained that there was no crucifixion in the place could be referred to the published accounts. And here was Mr. Stoit talking sarcastically about sales talk. Sales talk, indeed, when the demand for space in the Pantheon was so great that existing accommodation would soon be inadequate. There would have to be enlargements. More space, more buildings, more amenities. Bigger and better. Progress. Service. At the top of the Tower of Resurrection, Charlie Hapakook unfolded his plans. The new extension was to have a poet's corner, open to any bona fide writer, although he was afraid they'd have to draw the line at the authors of advertising copy, which was a pity, because a lot of them made good money and might be persuaded to pay extra for the prestige of being buried with the moving picture people. But that cut both ways, because the scenario writers wouldn't feel that the poet's corner was exclusive enough if you let in the advertising boys. And seeing that the moving picture fellows made so much more than the others, well, it stood to reason. Charlie had concluded it stood to reason. And of course, they'd have to have a replica of Westminster Abbey in the poet's corner. We Westminster. It would sound kind of cute. And as they needed a couple of extra mortuary furnaces anyhow, they'd have them installed there in the dean's yard. And they'd put a new automatic record player in the crypt, so there'd be more variety in the music. Not that people didn't appreciate the perpetual Wurlitzer. They did. But all the same, it got a bit monotonous. So he thought they might have some recordings of a choir singing hymns and things, and perhaps every now and then, just for a change, some preacher giving an inspirational message so that he'd be able to sit in the Garden of Contemplation, for example, and listen to the World Surfer for a few minutes, and then the choir singing, Abide With Me, and then a nice sort of Barrymore voice saying some piece like the Gettysburg Address, (laughs) or Laugh and the World lasts With You, or maybe some nice juicy bit by Mrs. Eddie or Ralph Waldo Trine. Anything would do as long as it was inspirational enough. And then there was his idea of the catacombs. And boy, it was the best idea he'd ever had. Leading Mr. Stoy to the southeastern window, he had pointed across an intervening valley of tombs and cypresses and the miniature monuments of bogus antiquity to where the land sloped up again to a serrated ridge on the further side. There, he had shouted excitedly, there in that hump in the middle, they'd tunnel down into that, hundreds of yards of catacombs, lined with reinforced concrete to make them earthquake-proof. The only class A catacombs in the world. And little chapels, like the ones in Rome, had a lot of phony-looking murals, looking like they were real old. You could get them done cheap by one of those WPA art projects. Not that those guys knew how to paint, of course, but that was quite okay seeing that the murals had to look phony anyhow. And they wouldn't have anything but candles and little lamps for people to carry around. No electric light at all, except right at the very end of all those winding passages and stairs where there'd be a big sort of underground church with one of those big nude statues that they were, that, that they were going up at the San Francisco fair and that they'd be glad to sell for a thousand bucks or even less when the show was over. One of those modernistic bras with muscles on them. And they'd have her standing right in the middle there, with, maybe with some fountains spatting all around her and concealed pink lighting in the water so she'd look kind of real. Why, the tourists would come a thousand miles to see it. Because there was nothing people liked so much as caves. Look at those Carlsbad Caverns, for example, and all those caves in Virginia. And those were just common or garden natural caves without murals or anything. Whereas these would be catacombs. Yes, sir, real catacombs, like the things the Christian martyrs lived in. And by gum, that was another idea, martyrs. Why couldn't they have a chapel of the martyrs with a nice plaster group of some girls with no clothes on, just going to be eaten by a lion? People wouldn't stand for the crucifixion, but they get a real thrill out of that. (laughs) <laughs> it, hell. Mr. Stoy had listened wearily and with repugnance. He loathed this pantheon and everything to do with it. Loathed it because in spite of statues and Wurlitzer, it spoke to him of nothing but disease and death and corruption and final judgment, because it was here in the pantheon that they would bury him, at the foot of the pedestal of Rodin's Bézé. An assistant manager had once inadvisedly pointed out the spot to him and been immediately fired, but there was no dismissing the memory of his offense. Charlie's enthusiasm for catacombs and the wee Westminster's elicited no answering warmth, only occasional grunts and a final sullen okay for everything except the Chapel of the Martyrs. Not that the Chapel of the Martyrs seemed to Mr. Stoit a bad idea. On the contrary, he was convinced the public would go crazy over it. If he rejected it, it was merely on principle, because it would never do to allow Charlie Habakkuk to think he was always right. (laughs) Get plans and estimates for everything else, he ordered in a tone so gruff that he might have been delivering a reprimand. "'But no martyrs. I won't have any martyrs.' Almost in tears, Charlie pleaded for just one lion, just one early Christian virgin with her hands tied behind her back, because people got such a kick out of anything to do with ropes or handcuffs. Two or three virgins would have been much better, of course, but he'd be content with one. "'Just one, Mr. Stoyt,' he implored, clasping his eloquent hands. Only one. Obstinately deaf to all his entreaties, Mr. Stoyt shook his head. "'No martyrs here,' he said. "'That's final.' And to show that it was final... He threw away the butt of his cigar and got up to go. Five minutes later, Charlie Habakkuk was letting off steam to his secretary. The ingratitude of people. The stupidity. He had a good mind to resign just to show the old buzzard that they couldn't get on without him. Not for five minutes. Who was it had made the place what it was? The uniqueest cemetery in the world. Absolutely the uniqueest. Who? Charlie slapped himself on the chest. And who made all the money? Joe Stoit. And what had he done to make the place a success? No, absolutely nothing at all. It was enough to make you want to be a communist. And the old devil wasn't grateful or even decently polite, pushing you around as though you were a bum off the streets. Well, there was one comfort. Old Joe hadn't been looking any too good this morning. One of these days, maybe, they'd have the pleasure of burying him. (laughs) Down there in the vestibule of the columbarium, eight foot underground, and serve him right. It was not only that he didn't look too good. Leaning back in the car, which was taking him down to Beverly Hills on his way to see Clancy, Mr. Stoy was thinking, as he had thought so often during these last two or three weeks that he didn't feel too good. He'd wake up in the morning feeling kind of sluggish and heavy, and his mind didn't seem to be as clear as it was. Obispo called it suppressed influenza and made him take those pills every night, but they didn't seem to do him any good. He went on feeling that way just the same. And on top of everything else, he was worrying himself sick about Virginia. The baby was acting strange, like someone that wasn't really there, so quiet and not noticing anything. And starting when you spoke to her and asking what you said, acting for all the world like one of those advertisements for Sal Herpatica or California syrup of figs, and that was what she'd have thought if he, and that was what he'd have thought if it was, if it hadn't, and that was what he'd have thought it was if it hadn't been for the way she went on with that Pete Boone fellow, always talking to him at meals and asking him to come up and have a swim, and wanting to take a squint down his microscope, and what sort of damn did she give for microscopes he'd like to know, throwing herself at him that 's what it looked like on on the surface, and that kind of and that kind of syrup of figs way of acting, like people at those Quaker meetings that Prudence used to make him go before she took up with Christian science that all fitted in you 'd say she was kind of stuck on the fellow, but then why should it have happened so suddenly because she 'd never shown any signs of being stuck in him before, always treated him like you would cre- you 'd treat a, a great big dog, friendly and all that, but not taking him too seriously just a pat on the head and then when he wagged his tail thinking of something else no he couldn't understand it he just couldn't figure it out it looked like she was stuck on him but then at the same time it looked like she just didn't notice if he was a boy or a dog because that was how she was acting now she paid a lot of attention to him only the way you'd pay attention to a nice big retriever and that was what had thrown him out if she'd been stuck on pete in the ordinary way then he'd have gone mad and raised hell and thrown the boy out of the house But how could you raise hell over a dog? How could you get mad with a girl for telling a retriever she'd like to have a squint down his microscope? You couldn't even if you tried, because getting mad didn't make any sense. All he'd been able to do was just worry, trying to figure things out and not being able to. There was only one thing that was clear, and that was that the baby meant more to him than he had thought, more than he had ever believed it possible, that anyone should mean to him. It had begun by his just wanting her, wanting her to touch, to hold, to handle, to eat... Wanting her because she was warm and smelt good. Wanting her because she was young and he was old. Because she was so innocent and he too tired for anything not innocence to excite. That was how it had begun. But almost immediately something else had happened. That youth of hers, that innocence and sweetness, they were more than just exciting. She was so cute and lovely and childish, he almost felt like crying over her. Even while he wanted to hold and handle and devour. She did the strangest things to him. Made him feel good, like you felt when you tanked up a bit on scotch. And at the same time, made him feel good, like you felt when you were at church, or listening to William Jennings Bryan, or making some poor kid happy by giving him a doll or something. And Virginia wasn't just anybody's kid, like the ones at the hospital. She was his kid, his very own. Prudence wasn't able to have children, and at the same time, he'd been sore about it. And at the time, he'd been sore about it. But now he was glad. Because if he'd had a row of kids, they'd be standing in the way of the baby. And Virginia meant more to him than any daughter could mean, because even if she were only a daughter, what she wasn't, she was probably a lot nicer than his own flesh-and-blood daughter would have been. Seeing that, after all, the Stroits were all a pretty sour-faced lot, and Prudence had been kind of dumb, even if she was a good woman. Well, she certainly was, maybe a bit too good. Whereas with the baby, everything was just right, just perfect. He had been happier since he'd known her than he'd been in years. With her around, things had seemed worth doing again. You didn't have to go through life asking why. The the reason for everything was there in front of you, wearing that cunning little yachting cap, maybe, or all dressed up with her emeralds and everything for some party with the moving picture crowd. And now something had happened. The reason for carrying on was being taken from it. The baby had changed. She was fading away from him. She'd gone somewhere else. Where had she gone, and why? Why did she want to leave him, to leave him all alone? absolutely alone, and he was an old man, and the white slab was there in the vestibule of the columbarium waiting for him. What's the matter, baby, he had asked. Time and again he had asked with anguish in his heart, too miserable to be angry, too much afraid of being left alone to care about his dignity or his rights, about anything except keeping her at whatever cost. What's the matter, baby? And all she ever did was to look at him as though she were looking at him from some place a million miles away, to look at him like that and say, Nothing. She was feeling fine. She hadn't got anything on her mind. Uh, No, there wasn't anything he could do for her, because he'd given her everything already, and she was perfectly happy. And if he mentioned Pete kind of casually, so she shouldn't think he suspected anything, she wouldn't even bat an eyelid. Just say, yes, she liked Pete. He was a nice boy, but unsophisticated, and that made her laugh, and she liked laughing. But baby, you're different, he would say, and it was difficult for him to keep his voice from breaking. He was so unhappy. You don't act like you used to, baby. And all she'd answer was that that was funny because she felt just the same. You don't feel the same about me, he would say. And she'd say she did. And he'd say no. And she'd say it wasn't true. Because what reasons did he have for anything she felt different about him? And of course she, and of course she was quite right. There weren't any reasons you could lay your finger on. He couldn't honestly say she, she acted less affectionate. Or didn't want to let him kiss her or anything like that. She was different because it was something you couldn't put a name to. She was different because of something you couldn't put a name to something in the way she looked and moved and sat around he couldn't describe it except by saying it was like she wasn't really there where you thought you were looking at her but someone someplace else someplace where you couldn't touch her or talk to her or even really see her that was how it was but whenever he had tried to explain it to her she had just laughed at him and said he must be having some of those feminine in- intuitions you read about in stories only his feminine intuitions were all wrong and so there he'd be back where he started from trying to figure it out and not being able to, and worrying himself sick. Yes, worrying himself sick. Because when he got over feeling sluggish and heavy, like he always did in the mornings now, he felt so worried about the baby that he'd start bawling out the servants and being rude to that goddamned Englishman and getting mad with Obispo. And the next thing that happened was that he couldn't digest his meals. He was getting heartburn and sour stomach. And one day he had such a pain that he thought it was appendicitis. But Obispo said it was just gas because of his suppressed influenza. And then he got mad and told, told the fellow he must be a lousy doctor if he couldn't cure a little thing like that, which must have put the fear of God into abysmal because he would said, just give me two or three days more. That's all I need to, com- to complete the treatment. And he said that suppressed influenza was a funny thing. Didn't seem to be anything but poisoned the whole system so you couldn't think straight anymore. And you get to imagining things that weren't really there and worrying about them, which might be true in a general way. But in this case, he knew it wasn't all imagination. The baby was different. He had good reason for being worried. Sunk in his mood of perplexed and agitated gloom, Mr. Stoyt was carried down the windings of the mountain road through the Bowery Oasis of Beverly Hills and eastward, for Clancy lived in Hollywood along Santa Monica Boulevard. Over the telephone that morning, Clancy had put on one of his melodramatic conspirator acts. From the rigmarole of hints and dark allusions and altered names, Mr. Stoyt had gathered that the news was good. Clancy and his boys had evidently succeeded in buying up most of the best land in the San Felipe Valley. At another time, Mr. Stoyt would have exulted in his triumph. Today, even the prospect of making a million or two of easy money gave him no sort of pleasure. In the world he had been reduced to inhabiting, millions were irrelevant. For what could millions do to allay his miseries? The miseries of an old, tired, empty man, of a man who had, no end, who had no end in his life but himself, no philosophy, no knowledge but of his own interests, no appreciations, not even any friends, only a daughter mistress, a concubine child, frantically desired, cherished to the point of idolatry, and now this being, on whom he had relied to give significance to his life, had begun to fail him. He had come to doubt her fidelity, but to doubt without tangible reasons— to doubt in such a way that none of the ordinary satisfying reactions of rage, of violence, of recrimination, was appropriate. The sense was going out of his life, and he could do nothing, for he was in a situation with which he did not know how to deal, hopelessly bewildered. And always in the background of his mind, there floated an image of that circular marble room, with Rodin's image of desire at the center, and that white slab in the pavement at its base, the slab that would someday have his name engraved upon it, Joseph Pant and stoit and the dates of his birth and death, And along with that inscription went another, in orange letters on a coal-black ground. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And meanwhile, here was Clancy, conspiratorially announcing victory. Good news, good news. A year or two from now, he would be richer by another million. But the millions were in one world, and the old, unhappy, frightened man was in another, and there was no communication between the two.